welcome to episode 244 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Have we got a topic for everybody today? We're going off the beaten path a little bit. It's a doozy. And we're going to get into some social Trinitarianism, and it's going to be excellent. It, I want to say this up front. Definitive. Definitive episode on social Trinitarianism. It's going to be epic, and that is my teaser before we get into affirmations and denials. Yeah, I, I didn't even know what to say about that. I was trying to think of some sort of pun with social Trinitarianism, and I just couldn't. I couldn't get there. There's plenty of time. If yeah, yeah, anything, well, I'm sure we'll I'm sure we'll get some before the episode's over, but like I just exactly. can't right now, yeah. Exactly. If there's anything we are remotely known for, it's bringing about puns that we think are hilarious. I'm never sure how they actually translate. We laugh. Yeah. We have a good time. Yeah, that's what that's what's important. <laughs> <laughs> even, I mean, other people listen seemed, to this show, but like we make the show for ourselves. Even for the most you part. seemed underwhelmed. That was like, I hear you trying <laughs> to convince me, and I'm not quite there yet. But go ahead, do uh, your thing. Give me, give me your hypothesis. So, before we get into social trinitarianism, let's do a little. By the way, that may be like the nerdiest, one of the nerdiest things I've ever said. Is like before we get to social trinitarianism, let's do some affirmations and denials. And uh, I'll turn it over to you. What do you feel like? You want to end on the high note or you want to end on the low note? Let's uh, let's start out with some denials today. Let's do it. Let's Ooh. flip it up here. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to kick it back to you then. All right. So I'm denying, and this is a, a denial that's near and dear to my heart, to your heart, to anyone who lives in oh. New Hampshire or in New England. Interesting. I'm de- denying deer, uh, dog ticks, not deer ticks, <laughs> specifically <laughs> dog ticks. Yeah. So I don't know what happened. But there are dog ticks everywhere. Like it's like it's like an endemic of dog ticks. It, it's like that town that got retaken over by the monkeys in like Sri Lanka. It's like that, except with dog ticks. I've never seen so many dog ticks in my life. I have been I have been bitten by dog ticks twice in the last month. Wow. And I had not had a tick bite for the entire I think six and a half years prior living in this area. So I don't know what it is. They're creepy, nasty little bugs. Uh, the good news is they don't typically carry the same kinds of really virulent diseases that deer ticks do. Right. So it's a little bit less of an impact, uh, at least in this part of the country. If you get bit, uh, you don't have to freak out quite as much. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that I mean, it's it's worthy of freaking out if you get bit by a deer tick, because Lyme disease is no joke. For uh, sure. But um, yeah, they're everywhere. Like, like we're, we're pulling them out. We, we woke up one day and we found two dead ones in our bed. Uh, like I took the dog out for like a minute in like the side uh, yard where there's never been any deer and the, the, like the dog came in covered in ticks. It's just ridiculous. It's crazy. So I think what you need to do here is for those, especially that live like in the U S on the West coast or anywhere else in the world, like describe what you're talking about in the circumstances in which like they arise. Like a dog tick. Yes, because for people who are like, I don't even know what a tick is, and what's the difference between like a dog tick and a deer tick? Like, I mean, who doesn't this know is what our a tick animal is? kingdom section portion yeah. of the podcast. So, a tick is usually some sort of small. I don't think they're insects. I think they're they're on some other classification. Uh, they usually have eight legs, but they're not spiders. And they have two life cycles. Usually, there's the nymph stage and then the adult stage. And in the nymph stage, they feed, and they oftentimes uh, they feed on a deer or some other animal that has 
infected blood. And then when they're adults, they then feed on whatever the next animal is. And what happens is they sort of like saw their way into your skin. That's how their mouth works. They kind of like dig into your skin. And then when they're getting ready to let go, when they're big and fat, full of blood, they actually like vomit back into your, uh, into the wound. And that's how you get like, like Lyme disease. My wife just walked past the door here and she looks like she's about to throw up wondering why I'm talking about this. (laughs) But so like a tick, it basically like it rides around on another animal and then it falls off. So you like deer tick, they're called deer tick because they ride around on deer. Dog ticks tend to ride around on dogs. And so they fall off into the grass and then you walk by and your leg brushes on the, the grass and then it gets on you. And then eventually it saws into your leg and it feeds on you. And they're just terrible little nasty bugs. There's like no, they're not good. Like there's nothing redeeming about them. Like spiders are freaky, but they eat other bugs. Mosquitoes are freaky and they don't really do much, but like they feed the bats. Like there's, there's all sorts of stuff that other uh, animals do, but it's like, there's just no good purpose for them. They're gross. They're just gross and freaky and nasty. And if you don't live on like the Eastern seaboard in the U S you might not appreciate just how traumatic and afraid everybody is of ticks because they are like this weird little thing. And yeah. to your point, you can walk through just briefly your own lawn and then all of a sudden you come in and you're like, how did they all get a hold of me that quickly? Yeah. Like they literally can grab on very quickly yeah. to anything that's brushing past them. So it's not like you're laying down, taking a nap in your yard for like two hours and then you wake up and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm covered in all these right. ticks. All you have to do is basically just take a cra- casual stroll right. through your property and you'll find them oh, yeah. all over Yeah, they're you. bad. They're nasty. And they're just, it's like everywhere. They're, they're just super prominent this year. I don't know what it is. I'm sure it probably has something to do with the same phenomenon we're seeing other places where places where animals normally are not, they're, they're around more because there's less people on water than right. water. So like we, we've been, I've commented on the show over the last year, the pandemic, like we're seeing foxes and deer and stuff in our backyard that... We've always seen those, but we're seeing them so much more. I think it's probably just that those animals are in areas that are populated with people more, that they're dropping those ticks off. But, man, they're gross. They're gross, and they, they spread disease, and they don't serve a purpose. Right. And, yeah, yeah, it, yeah. I mean, I think there are, there are ticks everywhere in the, in the country. I don't know that there's anywhere in the country where they don't have ticks. They don't deer ticks in certain parts of the country. They have different different types. And yeah, the prevalence, I'd say, ticks. is very different. We, yeah. we have them to a greater degree. There's just a magnitude of these guys are just hanging out. Yeah. Waiting. Incidentally, you know, I mean, this is straight animal kingdom reform brotherhood at this point. Incidentally, the animal that I've learned that they cling to the best, that they actually carry them better than deers, is turkeys. Yeah. They're yeah. low to the ground. They have a lot of, like, porous feathers. Apparently, those guys just grab on and they're like, here we go. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, I hear the best way to deal with ticks is to buy chickens because the chickens walk around your yard yes, and they eat the ticks. Exactly. So I'm like, I'm like uh, one more tick bite away from buying a bunch of chicken and just letting them loose in the backyard here at the church. So that would be, that would be amazing. I can actually picture you rocking some chickens like fairly yeah. confidently. Yeah. So save me from this trail of thought that I can't get off of. And what do you got for a denial? It's also incidentally, again, I'm going to use that word for the second time. Of the animal kingdom variety. It's so so surprising. I didn't anticipate you were going to do that. And here's my denial. I actually, th- this is legitimate. I, there's no hyperbole in this. It actually happened. I'm not joking. I was attacked by a goose today. Now, so I'm denying goose attacks. Geese are terrible. They, they are like super aggressive. But here's the thing. So I recognize the situation I was in was that I was going for a run in a place where I knew there were geese. It was long a waterway. And this time of year, the geese have little 
Gooselings? I don't know what to call them. Goslings. Baby geese? Goslings? Goslings, yeah. Goslings? Like Ryan that, Gosling. I was going to say, isn't that like also... Less Abby. They don't have abs like Ryan Gosling. Okay. Though. It's hard to tell. They have feathers. It's true. They could be, they could be totally They ripped. could. They could be rocking like six packs. Who knows? It's very it's very likely. These This, the goose that attacked me, certainly was. It was definitely ripped. But um, I came across uh, like several... What do you call a group of geese? A flock? Is it just straight flock? Seems like there should be a is. more it can't be. colorful and creative name. But if only I had a magical device in my pocket that I could look this up on while you you look that to up. Talk. I will continue my story. So I found this unnamed group of geese, and I was running through them. And here's the thing: like I don't mean them any harm, and I tried to like the clapping. I spoke to them as I approached, and there was a basically it was bookended by what I would say like two adult geese. There was a group of they were, I would say adolescent goslings they were not okay. babies but they were not full-grown they had like that kind of fu- feathery like very light fluffy yeah. look to them and i so here's the thing i ran past the 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 first goose goose i got right in the middle that goose wasn't super pumped that run by but i was like my bad like i'm way away from you i'm again i'm bookended by like water and like a uphill climb so i can't go too many places but i certainly tried to give them a heads up and i ran around and then I was like, <laughs> this is what actually happened. I was like, I'm in too deep. I got to turn around. I got to go a different route because I saw that there was these geese, there were geese <laughs> up ahead. And I was like, I really don't want to give them any stress. So I turned around and that's when the goose, yeah, uh, t- like literally came after me, was nipping at me. First, I like, gave that ugly hiss and I was like, I literally saying like, and I think there were people, there's like a parallel path that was up above on this hill so people could see me. I'm literally saying like, dude, I don't, I don't come at me, bro. Like I'm literally saying this, like, I don't mean you any harm. I'm trying to get beyond you. I want to leave you alone. And still, yeah, came right after me, hit my ankles up. Uh, and I mean, you know, like geese are not small when they're full grown and they're just like weirdly aggressive and weirdly yeah. antagonistic, weirdly, if I can say it this way, Paul Mick, like I felt like he wanted me and I get that. Like I was in the midst of his family. I was really trying to get out of there as fast as possible. So I understand yeah. part of the burden lays on me, but it just felt like unnecessarily combative. So that's yeah. why I'm denying him. Yeah, I one time when I was in uh, high school, I played soccer and we were out on the soccer field and there was geese that came and like lived on the soccer field. So part of our like warm up was to like chase the geese off the field and they would they would fly away to the other part of the field. But there was one day that this goose was just like not having it and he came at me and I like freaked out and I kicked him in the head. And I was like a soccer <laughs> player. So it was like a hard, like head. a hard kick in the head. Did you kill it? Uh, no. Well, so I thought I did because it like flopped over and it was kind of like I thought it was like having like a seizure. And I like was like my my like I love animals. Like I'm an animal lover, so yeah, I felt terrible. Sure. So I went over to like check on it, and as I got over to it, it like popped up like Jackie Chan and came at me. That was a scary, scary day. <laughs> it was. It was like he did like a kip up and was like, Wah! and then he just like it was scary. It was a scary uh, thing. So Keeps just no to prevent and get ahead of all of the emails we're about to receive, we don't condone goose violence violence no. against geese of any kind but i would say uh, it, well maybe that's just full stop i don't need to qualify by saying but they are kind of freaky and, mm-hmm. and surprisingly scary animals when they come after you so that, that was i was more like i've run along those this path many many times before and i've encountered the geese usually this kind of move off they'll sometimes look at you but never before have i gotten like this massive hissing and then the attack yeah. now again i recognize this, I don't even know if it was a female or male goose. Like 
they were in the midst of their family. I get that. I was trying my best. That's why I was like turning around saying to him I, or her, I want to be respectful. I'm turning around. I, I don't want to have anything to do with this. This was a horrible decision on my part. Please just let me go. And yeah. that didn't And this happen. goose was like, mm-mm. Nope. No, it was, no, it was no. honestly, it was super freaky. I, I was, I mean, it was like fearing for my life, but I was a bit like, is this thing going to pluck on my eyes? Like it just got, <laughs> it, it's, it jumped up. Like, they can hit was, you with those wings, man. Those wings are hard and they're strong. Man, it's, it's a, they're no joke. Don't mess around with Canadian geese. No, do not do that. So I feel like America would have invaded Canada a long time ago if it weren't for the Canadian geese that they've trained to guard the border. <laughs> you, you think that's what does it? <laughs> that's what does it. That's what keeps us from invading Canada. Uh, oh, that's Canada. Fair. Well, speaking of oh, Canada, what would you like to affirm? <laughs> I'm going to affirm uh, a little podcast which is made by someone who's on the Society of Reformed Podcasters, but this podcast is not on the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Oh, sneaky. Uh, Michael Bowman, who is uh, one of the co-hosts of the Restless Podcast, makes a fun little podcast called Thinking Out Loud with Pastor Michael Bowman. It's a very creative little subtitle there. And uh, he drives around in his car, he hits record, and he just thinks out loud. Like It's, a, it's just a fun kind of interesting glimpse at his mind, but there's some good reflective thought and some good biblical thought. He's a pastor and he's, he's making this as a way to sort of reach out to his congregation and to the people in his area. So it's a lot of like on the ground, practical kinds of uh, theologizing out loud. So check it out. Uh, It's called thinking out loud with pastor Michael Bowman. Uh, I think you'll be edified by it. It's they're usually pretty short, 10, 15 minute episodes, something to listen to while you're jogging. Although if you're going to be jogging by geese, you probably should have at least one headphone (laughs) out so you can hear them. So you can be alert (laughs) in case they turn on you. It's true. I can't listen to stuff anymore, at least not on that particular route. Yeah. What about you? What are you affirming? Uh, This is going to be, I want to go on record as like the shortest, most brief, most concise affirmation ever. Romans 8. Yeah, here's here's my hypothesis. Best chapter in the entire Bible. Come at me. Who do you think you are? Martin Lloyd-Jones? Was it him that said that? No, Derek Thomas I, said it, but I think he was probably. I think yeah, I was gonna say Martin I think actually it even goes back to it has like a lot of puritanical connections with that chapter yeah. and, and those saying that. But I really think it uh whoever said it before me was absolutely right. And I do condone that. Not uh, geese violence, but certainly that Romans A again, I think the old argument goes something like this. If you have like five minutes to live, are you gonna go back and read a some kind of genealogy and limitations, or are you going to read Romans eight, for instance? Yeah. I'm going to read Romans eight. It's yeah. amazing. Book ended by, you know, like there's no condemnation in Christ. There's no separation from the love of God. Boom. Sp- the gospel, everything else in between best chapter in the Bible. Go ahead. Come at me. I don't think anybody in our audience is going to argue with you too much on that. <laughs> I don't think there's anybody that's like, yeah, like Micah chapter two. That's a pretty good one. It's way better than Romans 8. Well, here's the thing. Some people get offended by that when I say that because they'll be like, all oh, the scriptures God breathed. Like, yeah, I'm affirming that. I it's like That's like kind of table stakes. I get that. Yeah. I'm totally, I think we're all agreeing with that. I'm just saying like practically speaking, honestly, I probably read Romans 8 once a week and uh, it's the ultimate Kool-Aid man chapter of the Bible. Ultimate. So nice. it just felt like, I don't know, I've said this before. So I just felt like it's time to say Romans 8 full stop. Yeah. Yeah, let's just push pause on the podcast, go listen to that, or go read that, then come back. You can listen to it. Our episode doesn't have anything directly to do about Romans 8, 
At least not that I'm, I mean, I guess maybe. But Trinity's doesn't every episode we do have to yeah. do with Romans 8 yeah. when you think about it? I mean, the Trinity's in there, so we might we might come back around <laughs> to Romans 8 and the Trinity, but maybe. We'll see what happens. Everything comes back to Romans 8, especially this episode, which is about social Trinitarianism. And I'm glad that you suggested this topic. I think it is something that, I want to say like perennially comes up. I think that this yeah. might be something on the edge of common theological discourse. So I'm going to just put my cards out there, like lay everything on the table right away. This for me is just like a topic that's like complete overfitting. It's overthinking. It's, it's too much. So I almost felt like when you suggested this, I was like, that's a good topic. But is it weird to say that I was equally like, man, we've got to do this topic, don't we? Because it's yeah. almost like you want to say, why do we even have to spend an episode talking about this? And yet, I think there are some that are going to find themselves engaged with the topic. And there are also some that will find themselves in a future situation engaging with the topic as they hear it. Or it might be one of those things where it's like, let us introduce you maybe perhaps to these, these two words. And then you're going to find that once you, you've heard them together, you're going to see them in lots of places, yeah. if not only by that name. So let's just start with like some basic definitions of this, because it sounds like a combination of words that you want to be like, what is going on behind this? So let me start with like a really, really super layman's and then let's like kind of like layer into that. And I'll turn it over to you to give some like more technical definitions of that. Does that sound like a cool yeah. starting point? Okay. Yeah. Before you do it, one other thing that I'll say is, is there are those who are listening to this that are going to be like, yeah, yeah, social Trinitarianism, I know what that's all about. There are going to be those who are like, I've never heard of such a thing. And then there are going to be those who recognize their own view or parts of their view in what we're about to say. And I think those are the people that I want to... I want you to perk up and listen to this. If if what we're describing to you and calling social trinitarianism sounds like what you think about the trinity, then then you you need to like sort of think about why that is. Because what we'll see just sneak peek trailer here, social trinitarianism has kind of like wormed its way into evangelical theology in all sorts right. of ways and places. And so a lot of us and I'll, I'll even count myself in this until I got to seminary I was essentially a social Trinitarian and didn't even realize it. Um, and that's not to say there aren't there are some things about social Trinitarianism that are actually insightful and beneficial. But overall, what we'll find out is it's not actually Trinitarianism. So, so yeah, I think starting with some some good definitions that we can kind of layer on more complexity to is a good way to go. So I'm going to go super basic then to that end because for those that are like, what are you guys even talking about? To those who are like, yeah, I'm an expert in that thing. Let's go like really, really low level so that we can kind of build from there. So here's how I would define it. And as part of this, I'm defining, I'm going to use pejorative language here, but I'm also going to define it in terms of, I think, what is like the colloquial meaning behind what's happening here. And I'll leave it to you to kind of fill in some of those details to like then as a springboard for the next. This is like the podcast of all. Let's, let's talk about what we're talking about. So here we go. <laughs> Social Trinitarianism to me, it's, it's really this loose interpretation of the Trinity as consisting of three persons in a loving relationship as a model for human relationships. Right. And really the app, it really, this is defined backwards because the point, as you see it applied of social Trinitarian theology is to argue that what is social within God can be applied to human society. 
And so it's therefore this intrinsically, it's like an eth- an ethical or political theology. It's really not, I would argue, the other way around as we're extrapolating or exegeting from the scriptures, but it's a lot of eisegesis, or it tends to end up in that way as a kind of a natural outworking if you bring it to its logical conclusion. And so it is the doctrine, of course, of the Father, Son, and the Spirit, but they're three independent centers of consciousness with their own distinct intellects, wills, and energies of operation. Now, I'll pause there and kick it over to you because I know some would disagree with what I just said there, especially the latter point, but I'm trying to draw out what are the logical conclusions right on the face of our conversation. Yeah, so it's helpful when talking about social Trinitarianism to contrast it with what I like to call Trinitarianism, right? So (laughs) when you talk about the, the historic Orthodox understanding of the Trinity, what we're talking about is... Uh, that there is uh, a single divine nature right. and that, that that single divine nature fully subsists in three distinct persons right. and each person fully is that divine nature and is a subsistence of that divine nature. So it's not one part, one part, one part. It's not that the Father has some of the divine nature. It's that everything that is the divine nature, the fullness of the divine nature is subsistent in the, the Father, so also the Son, so also the Spirit. Where social Trinitarianism um, goes off the rails is they, they deny that that reality of a, a subsistent nature. And some of them, William Lane Craig is, is a common person we've talked about. Some of them do that by denying the fact that a nature is a thing at all, right? So William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland in um, Philosophical Foundations, which we did a whole episode on, on William Lane Craig, he denies the idea that there is a nature, that natures exist at all. And so he has to ground the unity of the Trinity in something. And so right. he, he grounds it in this sort of like part whole relationship, but also in the idea that there are these three centers of consciousness that are intimately interrelated each other on a social level, right? The, the concept that the Trinity is a society of individuals right. who share a common operation, a common, um, a common purpose, a common fellowship. It's a cooperative concept of the Trinity rather than a, a, like a substantial unity in the Trinity. And so it's not too much to say that there are lots of people out there who hold to this social Trinity and don't even realize it, either because they, they sort of fundamentally deny the possibility of a, a single nature being fully shared by, uh, by three persons or by multiple persons, or because they don't understand the concept of nature. They don't understand when we say that God is one being subsisting in three persons. They don't understand what we mean when we say one being. Um, or I think more likely, uh, people who who are overemphasizing something, and then they eventually exactly. fall out of, out of the understanding right. of what it yep. means to be a single nature. Um, so, so you might have someone who, who desperately wants to emphasize the unity of the Trinity in terms of how the father, the son, and the spirit are, uh, are, are loving each other. There, there's this bond of fellowship or this intimate fellowship. And for so long, they emphasize that, that they forget that the bond of fellowship is a function of the single divine nature, not what causes the three persons to be united to each other. So I think this is an important topic because I think 
you know, the, the, there was this dust up with uh, James White uh, with a YouTube video the other day, um, you know, kind of talking about divine simplicity. There's a constantly talk with William Lane Craig about this stuff. I think this is going to become a topic that, that we're going to be seeing a lot more chatter about in the interwebs um, on all sorts of ways. And maybe maybe I'm going to cause some of that chatter, hopefully, but I think some of it's just going to come up as a result of, of what's going on out there in, in Trinitarianism. And there's so much about this that is about the intent with which we're approaching this concept. I totally agree with what you just said. That's why I said it's overfitting. So, I mean, I know that technically that's super nerdy as like a statistical term, but oh, you know, overfitting occurs when you're, like, you're trying to predict something. And so you take a sample of information, you're trying to predict why by taking a look at sample X variables and the model, the sample data that you're using Instead of being able to generalize that to out of sample or experiences that are outside of the model you're building, what you do is you overfit it to such a degree that the sample that you've taken, you use all of the noise instead of the signal to make your inferences. And here it's like we're trying to understand human relationship by saying, well, God is just like us. Or then we can take a look at the interaction of the alleged interaction, the characteristic interaction of the Trinity and say, well, this is how we ought to understand human society. So in this way, you have like the three persons of the Trinity, the united in this, you know, perichoretic communion of distinct persons, which is in contrast, like you just said, to the traditional unity in terms of one divine nature or substance. And so we're basically looking to like the relation between father and son. This is go back to the EFS controversy. That's supposed to tell us something about the relationship between like men and women, for instance. And the logic of this move depends upon viewing each divine person as a distinct subject who then relates to the other divine persons the way that we relate to other human beings. And what I keep getting wrapped up in and why I said to begin with, why are we even talking about this is because why are we even talking about this? Like where this, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like this isn't coming from the scriptures per se. It's coming from us trying to superimpose some kind of logic on God so that we might try to build, Oh, it's almost like castles in the clouds, some kind of superstructure about how human beings interrelate and then say, well, we relate because this is how we think God relates. Right. Yeah. And, And so there's usually two, two moves that happen. Um, the first move is failing to understand that when we talk about um, what it means to be a human person or um, or to, to be a person, what we're right. doing is we're using terminology uh, that's appropriate of creatures and appropriated into particular uh, historical contexts and particularly psychosocial contexts, right? So when we talk about person... Uh, we commonly think in terms of personhood. We, th- we think about a particular kind of emotional and mental faculty. We think about a particular way of relating to other people, right? I have my personhood, you have your personhood, and, and there's certain fundamental um, boundaries and realities and criteria for what, what is a person and what isn't. And so that, that then gets imported into when we talk about the persons of the Trinity. Now all of a sudden we're using those same kinds of concepts to right. talk about the persons of the Trinity. Exactly. And so, you know, I, I'll, I'll just say this. James White is not a social Trinitarian, right? He, he's not. He firmly affirms that the uh, the unitive feature of the Trinity is the sh- single shared divine nature. But he had a debate with a, a Unitarian named uh, Roger Perkins, 
and and this is the this is a little interchange that uh, took place. I'll I'll try to pull up a link to the video and put it in the show notes. Otherwise, you can just look up James White Roger Perkins. It happens at about the two hour mark. It's I think it's uh, Perkins' first opportunity to cross examine uh, James White, and so Perkins asks. This is his first question. Does each divine individual in the Trinity possess their own separate mind or center of consciousness apart from the other two divine persons? White says that is how they recognize each other and interact with each other. Right. And so then there's a little bit of back and forth. Perkins kind of rephrases this question. And then uh, White says, clearly the father loves the son and the son loves the father. Therefore, there must be centers of consciousness to which love is a meaningful attribute for those words to be true. It goes back and forth a little bit. You know how like cross-examination is, like one person's trying to get someone to say a particular thing and the other person's not having it. But then Perkins says, so then you are comfortable saying that each divine individual has their own center of consciousness. And White says, yes, of course. Perkins mm. says, centers of consciousness separate centers of consciousness in God. White says, well, that's how persons relate to one another and speak to another. And then Perkins, uh, Perkins says, I'm asking you, you are comfortable saying that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have separate centers of consciousness. And White responds and says, I've affirmed that three times. So White is, as I said, White, hear, hear me, internet, right? Tony Arsenal does not think that James White is a social Trinitarian. He doesn't. He's not. But this way of talking and thinking about the Trinity has so woven its way into evangelicalism that even non-social Trinitarians are sometimes either inadvertently or advertently. Is that a word? Is that one of I'll those things? I'll accept it. Advertently. Either inadvertently or advertently using language as though they're a a Trinitarian, a social Trinitarian, right? So we have to understand this because this is, this is the other thing that I want to just get out there. Having an emphasis on the distinction between the persons, right? Everybody leans one direction or the other, right? You can't, it's not possible for us to fully hold in perfect balance, the oneness and the threeness of God, right? We're going to lean one direction or the other. Honestly, I tend to lean towards emphasizing the threeness of the Trinity because in the West, the oneness of the Trinity has been overemphasized historically. So when I'm talking to people, I tend to overemphasize the threeness of the Trinity, but it's not the same thing. Someone who overemphasizes the threeness or the persons or the distinctness of the persons that doesn't make them a, a social Trinitarian. Of course, per not. se, what makes them a social Trinitarian is denying the reality of a of a common, singular, simple nature which is fully expressed and fully subsists in each of the three persons. So right off the bat, you'll sometimes hear people say. Yeah, well, the Cappadocians were social Trinitarians, and Augustine was a a substance Trinitarian. That's not true at all. It's not true at all. Social Trinitarianism came to be and came to be understood as it was in like the sixties, like in the or the the fifties. Like Jurgen Jurgen Moltmann invented this theology, and here here's where it gets tricky. Like most corruptions of the truth. It wasn't as simple as him just inventing new language, right? You talk about perichoresis. Well, perichoresis is a perfectly fine term. It describes something real in the Trinity. It defined, it it's, describes the reality that the persons of the Trinity interpenetrate each other because they are a single, simple, undivided essence. 
what Jürgen Moltmann does is he redefines perichoresis to be this sort of, uh, you'll hear it talk about like, it's a dance. Like you hear that choreography in there. I've even said that it's an image of like the people dancing around each other. Well, it's not, that's not what the word means. It's, it's not an image of people dancing around each other, but that word starts to mutate and, and Moltmann uses it this way to show this, um, sort of like, um, interrelatedness, this common purpose, this idea that the persons of the Trinity are so united in purpose, they're so united in action, they're so united in their love for one another, that it's like a choreographed dance, that the two are acting as one or the three are acting as one, even though they aren't really one, they aren't substantially one, but they're one in this sort of dance of the Trinity. And that's where social Trinitarianism comes from. So when we look back at someone like uh, the Cappadocians, the Cappadocians affirmed defined simplicity. They affirmed eternal generation. They pioneered the doctrine of, of not pioneered, but they, they pioneered the defense of the deity of Christ based on the doctrine of eternal generation, which only functions in a situation where you have a single substance. Eternal generation makes no sense otherwise. By the way, if anybody wants to look at those first resources by Jürgen Moltmann, we should do well here to reference that. You're talking about, I think, his book, The Trinity and the Kingdom. Mm -hmm. And that's it is a landmark work with respect to the fact that he, I would say by his own definition, places social Trinitarianism in opposition of what he calls abstract monotheism, which he claims has characterized most of Christian theology. So if anybody's interested in actually going back and reading more about what you're talking about, that would be the resource to do that. You know, of course I agree with you, and I think like we should talk about then what this means for the average Christian, why it is that this is a big deal. Why does it warrant besides just like, cause it's one thing to say like James White has debated people about this. He's been, said some things recently, more recently that have caused people to kind of question and come into the stream of trying to understand and process what he's talking about. He's made entry points in this argument himself, but I think at the bottom line is so what, like, so what are we doing here? Why is it important to know this? And not just to know it, but to be aware of it and then to process it for ourselves so we can make sure that we don't fall into like these kind of ruts. Because I think you and I both, we've done, I mean, so many episodes, I think, around some type of Trinitarian theology. And right. it struck me, even as I was hearing you talk, we've talked about personhood. I mean, what is this like record? Like a thousand times before, because it's yeah. so important. We keep coming back to it, actually. It's surprising how often we end up here. But the question is, if this is a mystery, again, I think that the question I have in my mind right now is like, where do we cross the line into overfitting? Like, where do we just trust in God in this mystery of the Trinity, yeah. try to understand it as best we can without falling into like these needless, unnecessary argumentation while at the same time saying we want to be aware of them so we can combat against them? Does that question make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the short answer to the why does this matter question is because this is what the Bible teaches, right? So, so when we come to the Bible, the fundamental um, creedal statement in the Old Testament is that God is one, that there's, there's one God, there right. is no one like God, there is not another, right? Job says, I'll see God, I'll see him with my own eyes, him and not another. Um, you know, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. So this, this, um, this statement of absolute, unqualified, and un, uh, un filtered, undiluted monotheism mm -hmm. is the core functional creed of the Old Testament. 
And so when we get to the New Testament, then of course, which is is not where the Trinity is revealed, the Trinity is revealed to the church in between the writing of the Old and New Testament. So the New Testament is a Trinitarian document already. There's no development right. of the Trinity within the pages of the New Testament. When we get there, now we have to grapple with this idea, well, what does it mean for there to be Jesus who is God and the, the Spirit who is God and, 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 of course, the Father who is God? And the answer that the Bible gives is not, well, there's three gods. There's, there's just three gods. We just didn't know about two of them. That's not the answer that the Bible gives. The answer that the Bible gives, when you look at you know Hebrews chapter 1, like the Son is the expressed image of the Father's person, right? That language is not, it's not just saying like, well, there's this second God who's still a, an uppercase G God, and he's just like the other first God. That's not what the, the Bible is teaching. And so when we, when, we, uh, when we look at how the church is reflected on that, the answer to that was, and always has been, that in order for God to be one, there can be no composition within God. There can be no mixture of right. attributes. There can be no mixture right. of essence and existence. Because any of any of those things, any mixture within God brings about imperfection within God, right? If, if God is even a mixture of act and potency or of potential and potency, well, then God could become something he's not, meaning either he's not perfect now or he won't be perfect then, right? So we, we have to have these fundamental things settled. And the reason this is important is because in order for social Trinitarianism to be true, then those other things can't be. In order for us to say, and here, I'll just read a little bit. This is from Matthew Barrett's new book, which is called Simply Trinity, which is just phenomenal. And he's talking about social Trinitarianism. And his thesis is, is this is where I'm getting a lot of it, social Trinitarianism has sort of wormed its way into evangelicalism, and we didn't even realize it, right? The, the, the doctrine of the Trinity that he, he kind of paints this picture of like he went to college and he was taught this one doctrine of the Trinity. And then he started reading the classic sources and realized that that wasn't at all what the classic sources taught. And so he goes through and he ex explains it a little bit. And he says, others are bolder still. William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland argue that the quote, central commitment, end quote, of his quote, of social Trinitarianism is this quote, in God, there are three distinct centers of self-consciousness, each with its proper will and intellect, end quote. Three wills, three centers of conscious self-consciousness. This is the very DNA of social Trinitarianism. No Trinity otherwise. Rejecting the classic affirmation of divine simplicity, they conclude, again referring to Craig and Moreland, God is an immaterial substance or soul endowed with three sets of cognitive faculties, each of which is sufficient for personhood, so that God has three centers of self-consciousness, intentionality, right. and will. Right? So this idea, this is... Craig basically making God into something that is conceptually tenable to the human mind, right? Exactly. It's so much That's easier for us to understand what it means for God to somehow be a fusion or a somehow, somehow a unity of three separate entities, three separate persons, three separate things. And this theologically or philosophically, this is called a posterior unity, right? Three things come together and there's a unity there, but it's a unity that is a, is functional uh, after the fact, right? They come together, and then the unity comes to be. Well, what what classic Christian theology, in reference to the Trinity, affirms is this this um, prior. I don't know the technical term, but it's a prior unity. It's a it's like a axiomatic unity that derives or drives everything else about what we understand God to be is this functional 
uh, unqualified, undiluted confession of monotheism that requires this specific kind of unity, well, you have to start to reject this. And time and time and time and time again, whether it was Moltmann or whether it's Craig or whether we start to get into people like Grudem and Ware or in some senses what we're talking about and the, the issues that have come up with James White recently, time and time again, what we're coming at is we're talking about it and we're running into this wall of language where people are starting to say, well, like, well, you can't, if what you're saying about God is true, then we can't even have any true knowledge of God. If God really is this utterly alien kind of creep kind of thing where there are, there's one nature fully shared among three persons without division, we have no concept of that. We can't even think about that or talk about that. Therefore it must not be true. Right. That, that, that step is right. where we, where we go off the rails into social Trinitarianism, right? So Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem, it's this idea where we look at these relationships in the Trinity and because the language of father and son is used in the Bible, then of course it must be just almost just like a father and a son exactly. in, in create in creation. And of course, created fathers have authority over their created sons. Therefore the, the father must the have same. authority over the son, right? Or whether it's James White saying, well, you, you can't, you can't talk about omnipresence and omniscience as though they're actually the same attribute without collapsing into incoherency. Well, that's exactly what we're saying. In, in fact, is that those things uh, are one thing, but we have to talk about them as though they're two things. But because we have to talk about them as though they're two things does not, in fact, make them two things. And that's where we get here with the Trinity. What, what people like Moltmann and Craig uh, and to a lesser degree, people like Ware and Grudem, what they're saying is, if we really, really think that God is is singular in number, the way that um, substance Trinitarianism or classic theism, if we really think that the unity of the Trinity is as how people like Augustine and the Cappadocians and Athanasius and Aquinas and Turretin and Calvin, if it really is like that, then then there, there aren't three persons. So we affirm there are three persons, therefore that unity must be false. And that's where this gets dangerous, right? Because now what we've done is we've abandoned a fundamental tenet of the faith. This unity of the Trinity is not an optional thing that Christians can you know, take out and it's fine. It's a central, fundamental, confessional issue of the Christian faith. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm totally down with everything you're saying. I, th- I, mean, I think it's important for people to recognize that, as you said before, this is only really possible because there's like this conceptual fuzziness regarding the word person. And some people might hear us talk and think we're just sounding super nerdy in our definition of that. It's necessary. It's a prerequisite because father and son and spirit are understood as divine persons. It's assumed in social Trinitarianism that we can learn something from them about how to relate as human persons. This is where we cross the line. Like we're going over the Rubicon here and that's only possible because in both cases, divine and human, the word person has here been defined in terms of, I like what you keep saying, and this is what everybody keeps saying, center of consciousness. Like those are the three words, right? right? It's an I with an intellect and a will. Right. And the move from divine person to human person presupposes the prior move from human person to divine person. So it's only because the divine person has been defined according to our notion of human person that the divine relations are then able to inform human relations. This is what I meant by like, you start by defining it backwards and then pulling it into the, in the present. So social Trinitarianism depends upon projecting upon God, 
what we think a person is in order then to model ourselves upon that very projection. So to me, it's like an entirely circular argument. It makes God in our own image in order to find our image in God. Like, am I wrong with that? No, no. And, and, and that's, that's why this is dangerous, right? Is because it's, it's so easy to do. And because of the influence of people, especially people like Wayne Grudem, right, or, or D.A. Carson or, or Bruce Ware, these people who have had influences in the books that are used in seminaries or in the translations that reform folks really seem to love, the ESV translation, because they've had such influence in how those documents are written, how the, the study notes that we all cut our teeth on are phrased, um, you know, the, the, the way that complementarianism in the new Calvinist movement was always defended and was always mm-hmm. defined because those things are so much in the air of evangelicals or reformed evangelicals who are not, are not always all that well-versed with, with classical sources or confessional sources. It's exceptionally dangerous because we already have this propensity to define God in our own image. Of course. And now all of a sudden that feels really natural because now all of a sudden we're legitimized, right? It's, we're, we're already catechized by these documents. And so then when we start to start to reflect on God in deeper ways and we see ourselves that lines up with what these documents. So here's another quote from, um, Barrett's book. He says, the new Calvinist movement is not immune to social Trinitarianism either as much as it thinks. Evangelicals like Wayne Grudem and Bruce Ware have also redefined the Trinity as a society of persons defined by societal roles and relationships, cooperating with each other as distinct agents. In the 20th century, social Trinitarians redefined persons as relationships of mutuality and self-giving love to support equality in society, especially between the sexes, right? So that's the kind of the Moltmann side. But Grudem and Ware believe this society of relationships in the Trinity is defined by a functional hierarchy. Right. The Son, for example, is subordinate to the supreme absolute authority of the Father within the imminent Trinity, right? So, so do you see the move that happened there? Right. The the um, the egalitarians who right. were deeply influenced and deeply wanting to ground um, equality of person into sort of the societal thing, they took a concept like what Moltmann was teaching, where the the Trinity is no longer a uh, is no longer this metaphysically difficult to understand concept. It's no longer about a simple shared essence that we don't really have language for, that we have to speak analogically about. It's now about three persons working together, feeling this mutual bond of love and being so utterly united that we should emulate that. Right. So, so exactly. So rather than, and, and so here's the kicker, rather than say to the compliment or the egalitarians, Bruce Ware and Wayne Grudem, especially Grudem at the time, rather than respond to that by saying, no, no, your doctrine of the Trinity is just all whacked out. Instead, they went, well, your doctrine of the Trinity is okay, but the relationships within the Trinity, you got that part wrong, right? It's not this this equality love fest in the Trinity. It's this hierarchy of rank and order and subordination. But do you see the, the, the metaphysical understanding of how the Trinity functions between those two camps? is virtually the same. 
It's still distinct agents forming a society, interacting with each other in a particular way that now we emulate that particular way that they interact right. with. They just swapped out one form of society for another without right. actually addressing the metaphysical problems. And that's why this is hard and why it's dangerous, because that is a much easier move to make. And we might feel like we're actually responding to the issue. But what we're really doing is we're just we're just changing the color of the paint to a different color. It's still it's still, you know, the same thing underneath. You've just changed the surface of it. And that's that's way easier to do than the hard work of trying to figure out the metaphysics. And so the, this James White debate is a perfect example, right? This Unitarian confronts him and basically says, like, wait a second. In the Bible, it seems like there's these three persons that interact with each other. And interaction seems to imply that there's some sort of thing. So how do you get away with there not being three gods? He goes, well, no, there's just three centers of consciousness. That that's not that's not tritheism, three centers of consciousness. It's just three centers of consciousness within one within one being. Well, that that's not the historic definition. So instead of addressing how he's mischaracterizing the theology or how he's embedded the wrong presuppositions, instead he almost takes the bait and then flips it over. So so it's really easy to do. It's really hard to get away from unless you really are, are paying attention to what's going on. And that's why it's so important to read these classic sources, because then you also run into people like, well, yeah, but like the Cappadocians were social Trinitarians and they're seen as like these great defenders of the faith. Well, they weren't social Trinitarians. They didn't they didn't affirm even though they did tend to emphasize the personness, the threeness, they used the same kind of analogies that you might see from some social Trinitarians now about James, Peter, and John are all humans. They were not social Trinitarians. So we have to understand the theology, we have to understand the history, and we have to be reading the classic sources. Without those classic sources, it really does look like this social Trinitarianism thing. Yeah, that, well, it makes just a lot of sense. Well, if it made a lot of sense, why is, why is this something that really only came up in the last 70 or 80 years? Right. I mean, I think in the final analysis, we can just call it out as a certain type of idolatry, right? Just painted over, warmed over that right. the sense of trying to superimpose on God who we are. And in many ways, it's almost like, I don't know how to say this, except to say like, just we leave well enough alone. There yeah. are mysteries here that we do not understand. And it's almost better. You and I, you know, how you and I have joked about how like, don't use any metaphors. Don't use any similes for right. the Trinity. It's just that way foolishness lies. And to me, this is the same kind of thing. It's just a massive, again, degree of overfitting. The only way this works, in my mind, the, here's the only way this works, and it would have to work both theologically and philosophically. So in other words, what would it take for social Trinitarianism to be valid? And again, we haven't even touched on all kind of so, the outworkings that are like taken from this in terms of how we relate to one another, but we're just really talk, focusing on like how we end up in looking at God as some kind of model for us, which is a weird way in many ways with respect to his relationship among the Trinity. But here's to me how this, the only way it could work. Theologically speaking, it would have to avoid the heresy of modalism, right? Uh, we, I think we did a whole episode on that, didn't we? On mm -hmm. modalism. Yeah. Uh, that's the view that there's only there. You know, there's only one God. Two, it would have to avoid the heresy of polytheism, right? Um, the view that there's like there's more than one God, and then it would have to fit well within. And this is where you get to fits well within the traditional formulation of the doctrine of all doctrines, such as like the Athanasian Creed. Like it would have to fit within that. Philosophically, the only way this could be acceptable, I think, is if it would render the Trinity, I'm going to be careful how I say this, render the Trinity logically coherent 
and does so without going to like these extreme lengths, such as like denying the identity of indiscernibles or rejecting the classical notion of identity right. in favor of some form of relative identity. So in other words, it's a heavy lift, like no right. matter which way you look at it. I think that's kind of what we're saying is there's some things worth looking at in trusting in the scriptures as to the mystery, which is profound without getting caught up in trying to make all of these particularly nuanced definitions and compartmentalizations. And I think that this center of consciousness is in many ways, like the most profound manifestation of that error. And this does tend to be something that reform folks can fall into in particular, because we have such a penchant to want to tie bows on everything and to really feel like we can explain it. Well, in one hand, acknowledge, no, it's definitely a mystery. And then the other hand, say like, well, no, I want to identify and manifest and really delve into this center of consciousness thing so I can try to explain to you why it is that God can interact, so to speak, with himself. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is a topic we could continue to dig into, and I'm sure it'll come up again. It's not like this is the last time we're going to, even though this is the definitive episode, <laughs> I'm sure that will come back to uh, to the topic at some point in the future. But one of the things that we do always love to talk about that we're always going to come back to oh, is well Logos done. Bible software. That's true. So, so one of the things, you know, we're trying to do, we've, we've got this sponsorship um, Logos has been so generous for our listeners. You can get a discount on any package by going to reformbrotherhood.com, not reformbrotherhood.com, to logos.com <laughs> slash reformbrotherhood. Um, logos.com slash reformbrotherhood. You can get a 10% discount on any base package and five free books. It's a very generous offer yes. for a, a tool really that I think can revolutionize and can change the way you study the scriptures, the way you, you study and read theology. And one of the things we're trying to do each week when we talk about it, you know, some shows, and there's nothing wrong with this. If you're a show that does this, don't at me. Some shows, they record like one sponsor bit and they just replay that you know, however many times they're, they're kind of contracted to do that. But we wanted to, uh, in order to kind of show that we use the software, we use the product, but also to just sort of, you know, demonstrate and put on display all the different features. We wanted to highlight something different each week. And this week we wanted to highlight, um, there's all these cool little guides and tools that they have, right? Right. Uh, Everybody's familiar with like a basic search function. Everybody, you know, we've talked about using reading plans and how to, how to do that kind of stuff. But within, within Logos, and I think that there are different, different base packages have access to different different guides and different tools. But within Logos, there's all these guides. So you can open it up. There's a passage guide where you can type in a uh, scripture passage and it'll kind of like break out different different options and different resources. Right. There's a there's an exegetical guide, which will focus on primary languages, Greek languages. And then there's this thing called the theology guide. And this is so cool because you can type in a theological topic. So like just a little bit of prep for tonight, I did Trinity, but I could do divine simplicity, Oh, they don't have one for simplicity. They do, but I think it's called, yep, God's simplicity. Um, And it'll open up keyed to this Lexham Survey of Theology, which is a resource they've produced. And it'll have all the same things. So this has uh, recommended reading for for God's simplicity. It's recommending the uh, Summa Theologia by Aquinas, Hilary Portier, Christian Faith by Mike Horton. And then it's going to recommend resources for you that you don't you don't own. So if you if you did want to go and buy more, so it's recommending God with all parts by James Dalazal to me. Right. I don't own that in my library, but it's showing me here's a resource out there that might help you in the study of this topic that you don't yet own. And so this is a fabulous way, if you are trying to understand a particular theological topic, to just right. go into Logos, pull up the theology guide, and just 
type up the topic and look what is there. There's a whole list of theologically related passages. So divine simplicity is one of those ones where people are like, well, yeah, show me that in the Bible. Well, I can go to Exodus 3.14, which says, I am who I am. I could go to Exodus 34, the Lord passed before them, claimed the Lord, the Lord, God and merciful. Like it's got all these different theological passages. And then I can click there and then you can fall down the rabbit hole. You start reading commentaries, but this tool is fantastic. And, you know, sometimes I think we feel like uh, things were so much better in John Calvin's day when like they just knew this stuff and they didn't have these tools and they could do this all with their head. But like, think about what John Calvin could have accomplished if he had a tool this powerful. Right. It, it, John Calvin was just a guy. I mean, he was a brilliant guy, but he was just a guy. It's not like he was he was he wasn't Hercules. He didn't have some divine endowment of power. He just he just studied the scriptures. Think about how much closer to understanding the scriptures you can get if you're able to study with all these tools and cross references right at your fingertips. Yeah, it, this is fantastic. It's almost like I would describe it like this. It's like a neural network for yeah. theological inquisitiveness. And Very much. it's not just reserved for people who you might think are like super nerdy and need to do this for like some kind of vocational ministry. It's just really wonderful. You can actually, I was going to say like blow a lot of time, but it's not wasted time. Like I can't tell you how many times I've just typed stuff in and been like, I wonder what comes up because yeah. I'm really interested to see like where this takes me. So it's like having a group of really good friends whom you trust recommend stuff to you that you wouldn't otherwise know existed. Yeah. So it's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a fabulous resource. Um, they have packages of all different levels. So if you, you know, sometimes people are like, oh man, I can't afford that. There are some very reasonable packages uh, available that you can start your library. You can start using this stuff. And as you grow theologically, uh, maybe as you take a new position or you're, you're going to start teaching a Sunday school or a Bible study or something like that, um, you can add to your library piece by piece. You can buy, you can upgrade your package and just pay the difference. Um, and again, like I said, they've, they've given our listeners a very generous discount of 10% if you use the link uh, logos.com slash reform brotherhood. And also, like I said, you get to pick those five free, uh, free books. And speaking of generous and our own gratitude, I want to thank brothers Jackson, Anthony, and Josh who jumped in this past week and decided to give some of their own resources through Patreon to support the podcast. I, every time we do this, all that comes into my mind is the song. Thank you by Ray Bolts. Have you ever heard that song? I think so. Do you know? It's like, people sing, us look few, this up. sing us a few bars, Jesse. Thank you for giving <laughs> to the podcast. Yeah, it's something like that. So go take a look. It's, I think it won like the 1990s song of the year. Like Ray Bolts was like the man in the 90s. Listen to this song. It's like the quintessential like Christian, I want to say kind of kitsch. It's probably yeah. disrespectful, but you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I know. Oh, okay. I definitely know. Everybody go look this up. Thank you by Ray Bolts. But certainly we're so thankful for everybody goes to patreon.com backslash reform brotherhood and supports the podcast. Of course, we're just thankful to everybody who's part of the reform brotherhood with their voicemails, with their emails. Speaking of voicemails, again, we're cataloging them. We're gathering them up. We're going to do some like epic question casts. And also I think that's going to inform some of our casts in between as we formulate the next official series. So how can people call and leave us a voicemail? You can call 607-444-2767. Bros. Bros. And uh, we've got some voicemails queued up. We're going to do some grab bag episodes coming up. 
Uh, we have one voicemail that came in that's probably going to spawn an entire series. So if you've got questions, we may not have answers, but we're certainly going to give it a shot. Uh, but we'd love to hear from our listeners. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are, what your questions are, what kinds of things you'd like us to talk about. Uh, just a reminder, keep them short, concise. If you need to like write them down and read them ahead of time, that's fine. Uh, and please don't leave your phone number. Like, please don't. <laughs> if you call us from your phone, the phone number is recorded by the Google That's Voice true. service that we That's use. That's true. So yeah. if we really need to get a hold of you, we can. But if you leave your phone number on the voicemail, then we can't play your voicemail on the show. We're just looking out for you. We don't want strange people finding your voicemail on the interwebs. It's true. And then calling you up and stalking you. Like, probably don't we all get enough junk calls it's from true. like like I get like two a day about some kind of weird insurance or warranty that's expiring that I don't own. Yeah, Do I would calls? love it. They're always like, this is your last effort. I'm like, please <laughs> let it be my last effort. We wanted to give you one more phone call before you closed out your file. I'm like, please close out my file. What I'd like to do is I'd like to turn those around into some kind of weird, aggressive, slightly polemic gospel presentation. Instead, it'd be like, this is your last chance to avoid eternity separated from Jesus. Please call us back immediately. Please call us back. Yeah. Yeah. Let's get on that. Yeah. If you know how to reverse engineer that phone number so I can somehow call the robocaller back and, and share the gospel with them, please let me know. I would, I would, I would do that. Uh, I would do that too. And until I would say we get somebody who can give us that instruction, Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. What if I'm part of 